If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 6 through 19 as we continue our look at the Lord's Prayer, or the true Lord's Prayer, which is also often called the high priestly prayer when Jesus prays the night before his crucifixion for his disciples. So while you're turning there, just a few just notes. Hey, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our Thanksgiving service later on December 1st. It is my favorite service of the year, um, and we'll have more information about that, but we would encourage you to come ready to publicly profess thanks for what God has done in your life this year, specific things. It could be very tactile, like God provided us a car, or it could be very, very deep, like God saved our marriage. God healed me from past abuse, but uh, it's a sweet, sweet time to come worship together. Uh, also, second, December 8th, we have a congregational meeting. That sounds way too formal. It's a, we'll call it a family meeting previous to the service during the Sunday school hour, December 8th. We're going to be ordaining Jeff Fluvog for the diaconates, as well as uh, we're going to be having uh, these, actually, tradition, we're going to be having uh, quarterly family meetings from now on, um, and, and maybe even more often than that, in order to communicate things going on in the life of our church and better connect with you between the leadership of our church and our body. But uh, plan on being a part of that meeting December, chat, December 8th. All right, let's get to God's Word. We, can, we are in the same passage we were last week. We're going to take a, a different slant at it uh, this morning. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. Hear God's Word. I have manifested, this is Jesus speaking and praying to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I, I've given them, sorry, that they may be one even as one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. There he's talking about Judas. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake... I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, we saw a couple weeks ago in verses 1 through 5 in the beginning of Jesus' prayer that he prays for glory. He prays that we see that Jesus' greatest passion and desire is for his own glory and for the glory of the Father. And the rest of the prayer, though, is about how God is going to get glory through the salvation of sinners. 
And therefore, much of the rest of the prayer in verses, from what we see in verses 6 through 26, and we'll look at next week, is about praying for those who will be about the salvation of sinners in this world. In other words, Jesus prays for his disciples who will be his great missionary force in this world. And then actually what we're going to see in the coming weeks is Jesus doesn't simply just pray for the disciples, but then he's going to go on to pray for all those who might come to know the Lord through the disciples' ministry. In other words, he prays for the missionary force, and then he prays for the missionary field. And you say, but what we see here in this text, in this particular text, is that Jesus is praying for his disciples because they are going to be his great missionary force. This is a passage, interestingly enough, about mission. It finds its high point and this call to be about mission. Now, you ask the question, where is the word mission in this text? It's actually said, stated twice in verse 18. Look at verse 18. It says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The word sin in the Latin is the word missio from which we have gotten in the English the word mission. This whole word of mission and missionaries that is um, well known in the Christian church comes from this word sent. That you are, that if you are a missionary, you are a sent one. And what the word mission means is that it's talking about our sentness into the world. And so what we have this morning and the way we're going to approach this prayer, last week we, we went and took at this approach that Jesus is praying for a people who are going to be left behind, not in that sense, if you know what I'm talking about, who are going to be left behind in the world as he goes to heaven, and they are going to be endure a lot of hatred. And so therefore, how do we endure? And Jesus prays for them that they may endure. But he doesn't simply pray for them that they may endure and simply survive life on this earth, but he prays for them in a particular way so they may endure because they are going to be the sent ones. They're going to be the missionary force who are given the joyous mission of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in the world. And so here's our guiding statement this morning and where we're going, that Jesus prays that in sending us into the world, he prays three things for us about our mission that we would keep, first and foremost, the tension in our mission. Second, that we would seek the joy in our mission. And third, we would experience the grace for our mission. Those are your three points this morning. If you like a roadmap, that's where you're going. Sometimes I give it to you in the front end. Sometimes I let you just kind of linger a little bit. Feel the tension of it a little bit. But that's where we're going this morning. Jesus prays and sending us into the world that we would keep the tension in our mission, seek the joy of our mission, and experience the grace for our mission. First, let's look at Jesus' prayer to keep that we would keep the tension in our mission. This is an odd way to phrase this, but there is a very famous statement that is said throughout the church, but it causes great confusion and frustration. In fact, it is um, amongst the cultural battle lines, often within local churches, it's around this phrase that we are called as Christians to be in the world, but not of the world's. And so people who drink alcohol, they're in the worlds. And the people who say you should never touch the stuff, well, they believe, they emphasize the out-of-the-world parts. The people who homeschool their children, they believe that we should be out-of-the-worlds. That's what their focus is. Those who send their kids to public school say, oh, no, no, we're going to prepare our kids. They're the missionary force. They're to be in the world. There's various lines in which this is drawn. Those are simply some hot-button points in which it is, it is lingered at. But what we feel here in this statement, in the world and not of the world, it comes from here in John 17. 
that I have not called them out of the world, but to remain in the world's. But they are not to be of the worlds. What is there is a tension going on here? And I'm going to bring out the tension in two phrases. That we are called to be in the world, which means this, that we must resist the temptation to withdraw from the worlds. Say it again. We are called to be in the worlds, and therefore, which means we must resist the temptation to withdraw from the world. Look at verses 11 and then drop down to verse 15. Jesus says this, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Father. Then again in verse 15, I do not pray that you would take them out of the worlds. Jesus is keeping us here, and he is sending us in mission to be in the world. We are called to remain. Now, what does it mean to remain in the worlds? What what it means to be into the world means that we are to remain deeply engaged in the worlds. Jesus does not simply mean that you're to be physically present here. He doesn't simply talking about that your corpse is supposed to walk around this earth. No, it's something far greater. It means that you're to be actively engaged, sent into, and interacting with the world around you. Now, there's a pattern, though, and against this, there's a pattern, and the temptation that we have to resist is a pattern of withdrawal. And this pattern of withdrawal was seen throughout church history. This was the response of the Pharisees to the things of the world. They wanted to withdraw from the world. There is a separatism. In every age of the church, there have been those who are separatists. We have the hermits in the fourth century, various cultic groups that would move out to the desert. There was a monasticism within the Roman Catholic Church. A monasticism it was a withdrawal from the world and therefore a denial, though, of our Christian calling to remain in the world. Listen to what Martin Lord Jones says. He says, our Lord does not pray that we may be taken out of the world. We sometimes wish we could pray that. The idea of monasticism, wouldn't that just be great to live in a beautiful place where there's gardens and if you're that kind of uh, monk, you make really good Belgian beer and you hang out in beautiful gardens and you are in a beautiful cathedral and this is what you do all the, all the time. And that's what we're not called to do. We want to retire out of the world and arrive in some magic circle where nothing can disturb us. And to create our holy huddles where everything can be okay. Well, one, that is delusional, right? Because the church is a problem in and of itself. But then two, it's a neglect of our mission. The reason to be in the world. Why are we called to stay? Because we have the word of life. You see, you hold the most important message that has ever been mouthed in the history of the world. And if we don't proclaim the message of the goodness of Jesus Christ and his proclamation in this world, then no one else will. We have the words of life for this world. And so Jesus tells us to stay and to share that message in word and deed. To bring his kingdom, to make it visible. Not to bring it, but to manifest it in this world. And so this is what God calls us to do. To remain in the world, and therefore we must resist withdrawing from the world. Well, the other part of it is this. To feel the tension is this. We are called to be not of the world, which means we must resist conformity to the world. Say it again. We are called to be not of the world, which means we must resist conformity to the world. Three places I'll look at our passage this morning. To root this. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, what? Out of the world. We remain physically in the world, but when there is a sense spiritually, we are removed from the world. 
Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then lastly, in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The call here is that we are not to be people of the world. If the solution is not withdrawal to the world, well, conformity is not the answer either. It is a great temptation to think, as is commonly, and this is actually a significant practice today. It is actually, I'm, I may be more concerned about this part of the tension than I am about the first parts. Even a church that is like 80% homeschooled. It is actually this aspect that I may be more concerned for us. It is a great temptation and it is extremely common to think that we must be relevant for the world. In fact, one of the most popular Christian magazines now is the term, uses the term, it's called Relevant Magazine. It's essentially the Christian version of Wired Magazine. But there is in this a problem of being conformed to the beliefs, the worldview, the values, and the practices of this world. And there are many warnings against conformity to the world throughout the New Testament. James 4.4, 4 example, for example, says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God's? And then 1 John 2, 15 through 17, says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we actually see there in 1 John 2 what it means to be of the world, because that's an important question. What does it mean to be of the world? Well, it means this. It's that it said it there in verses 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the, life, of, of the eyes and the pride of life. To be of the world can be summed up like this. It is life, to think of life and thinking about life apart from God's. Here, and once again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great pastor in England in the 50s and the 60s, many years ago, had, was before his time in communicating how we are to be relevant and yet not conform to the world. He says this, that being of the world is an attitude towards everything, towards God, towards ourselves, and towards life in this world. To be of the world is to view all things apart from God. And so let me ask you this. If you're keeping your children out of school because you fear something, is that, is, is that a view that views God as being in charge of the world? No. In other words, that you can be a Quaker with a, with a dress down to your ankles and you can wear a tie and blue pants all the time and you can still be equally as much of the world as the person who hangs out in bars. Because the heart of being in the world is that you think according to the world's practices and the world's values. It's to view the world apart from who God is and what he has promised to you. So if you don't view the world as if God is in charge, as if God will protect you, as if God has sent you in for mission, then that is a faulty view of life and actually you have a very worldly worldview. We are called, though, I want you to see, we are called to be different, to be set apart, to be holy. This is, and by the way, this is paramount for the success of mission. We are to be what we, Ben actually said it this morning, we are to be salt and light. It's from Matthew 5. We're to be a city on a hill. Jesus says you must not be of the world. There's no way people who are, are going to believe that Jesus has sent you unless you are radically different. Unless you're very different. In other words, the world should be curious about you. You should be an enigma. You should be something strange to the world. If Christians are just as materialistic and individualistic 
with how they conduct their lives, or if Christians are just as dependent on circumstances for their joy, then we are like the world. You see? But he didn't say it goes far. It goes deeper than most of the surface level things. Historically in the church, we've gone, hey, don't be like the world, so don't play card games. Hey, don't be like the world, so don't go to the theater. Now, that might actually mean you shouldn't go see certain movies. It might actually mean that there's certain places you don't go. It might actually mean that there's certain activities you don't participate in. But ultimately, what we're saying is, that, is this. Is, is your life lived in view of God, or is it lived in view of the values of the world? If you're just as prejudiced, and just as angry, and just as hostile in your politics, then you're just like the world. Even if it means if you think you're pushing and seeking to bring about moral, good moral changes. If you're just like everybody in the world, if people don't look at you and see something really unique in the way you live your life, why should anybody believe that Jesus has sent you? Why should anybody believe that there's anything different? The danger of conformity to the world is that it usually happens, though. Understand this. It happens quietly and silently over time with the day-in, day-out decisions to live by the world's values. That the 20-something who comes out of college is on fire for Jesus and is going to give their life to Jesus, gets married and has children and has a job, and the next thing all they can think about is their 401k. And did it happen overnight that they go, you know what, I'm going to have a worldly perspective today? No, what happened was a slow, like boiling a frog, that you woke up every day and you did not resist conformity to the world. And on so many levels, the witness, this is a warning, the witness that seems to set us apart from the world seems to be fading and growing dim in our churches. Conforming of life to the world is the herald of the final silencing of our witness in this world. That if you lose your saltiness, if you don't look any different, then you will not be able to reach the world. Mark Dever, actually, he's a pastor in, in, in uh, the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., said this, We have become so much like the world that we never provoke any questions. The world never looks at us and goes, Huh? Question mark? And therefore, we have no answers to provide. Instead, we are called to be sanctified. Not conform, and instead, be called, we are sanctified. What does Jesus say in verse 17? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. What is he saying? Jesus is saying this, that I am sending them, and what I pray for them, I'm sure Jesus does pray for this from time to time, but his his prayer is for his disciples is not first and foremost, may they be the most articulate proclaimers of the gospel. May they have golden tongues. No, what does he pray? That they would be holy, that they would be sanctified, that they would be different, that they would treat people better, that they would face suffering in this world in a more holy way. We should be enigmas and curiosities in this world, that people can see the difference. There's an old Puritan way of saying this. Three centuries ago, who said this, how can you know that someone's been born again? They said, listen, you gotta talk to their horse. He said, your horse will be the first person to see the difference in you if you've had a radical change in your life. <laughs> because you'll begin to treat your horse differently. What is he getting at there? That when you come to know Jesus, when you get sanctified in the truth, Everything in your life changes from the way you treat your animals to the way you spend your money, 
the way you spend your time. One of the, I, my, I am not, I will be the first to admit, I am not the most bold proclaimer of the gospel outside of the church pulpit. It's easy up here. I mean, you guys, for some reason, of your own voluntary and volition, I have no idea why, show up and you're like, all right, dance, gospel monkey. And so I dance. <laughs> but when I'm with my neighbors, I have a really hard time with it. But I do know this. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I actually went to a wine dinner with our neighbors. Now, listen, you know, you, th- you think it was drinking wine with them that it would bring them to Jesus? No. You know what, what makes, them, makes us weird to them? Is that we have four kids and our life looks utterly ridiculous. That people are always coming in and out of our doors. We have toys strewn all over the place. That there are always people at our house. That we have an adopted child. All these things, they look at us and they go, these people are weird. And so a couple weeks ago, you know, my kid's not here. And so I actually get to use this illustration. I wasn't going to do it. So I had the first sex talk with one of my kids, the male. And so I actually got to share the gospel with my neighbors and telling them about how the goodness of God's, how God has formed sexuality and how I want my kids to see me as, as I want, I want them to see me as the, the person who is most knowledgeable on this topic. But, dad, but also the dad is safe to talk about this because my father in heaven is safe. That's really weird to them. In fact, they actually, they ended the night by saying, hey, we're really curious to know how that talk, those talks are going to continue to go. Tell me how that turns out. Listen, I didn't talk about Jesus on the cross, but I got to talk about the goodness of Jesus. Are you weird? Now, here's the point in all this. I've belabored this too long. The calling as believers, the question is this, are you to be the in-the-world people, or are you, to be of not, are you supposed to focus on being the not-of-the-world people? Don't break the tension is the call. If you break the tension, you lose the mission. If you cease to be in the world, you lose the mission. If you cease to be careful about this, your life being sanctified and being holy, you lose the mission. I'm going to use this illustration. My kids have a slack line. You ever seen what a slack line is? It's a kind of a nylon, like, it's kind of like a rope, but it's a flat rope that, that you run between two trees, and it's so they kind of learn how to do it. It's like a balance beam, except it moves far more than a balance beam does. Now, if you have any hope of walking across the slack line, this is something I, I joke I like to, to give to the adults who come to our house. Hey, go try the slack line. It's really hysterical to watch even three people in their 20s and 30s go, oh, I'm not as, you know, I don't have much dexterity as I used to. But if you have any hope of walking across a slack line or even simply a gymnast-like uh, line, then you would have, what you have to do is you have to keep a tension in your body. Every movement, left and right, in order to not fall off the bar. And therefore, if we're going to be engaged in mission, as God has called us to be engaged in mission, we must embrace the keeping of the tension that we would reject oversimplifications Simple theologians and simple Bible teachers would love to make this monochromatic. You're just supposed to be, we're just going to focus on you being a holy people and that's all it's going to be about. Or we're just going to focus on you being a people who are relevant to this world and being in the world. But we must reject these oversimplifications. All of us become less effective in our mission when we fall off on one side or the other. If we disdain the world, then you'll fall off on one side. If you are too assimilated and conformed to the world, then you'll fall off another side. So we've seen that we cannot withdraw and we cannot conform. Well, we're in deep trouble, aren't we? We're in deep trouble. The reality is this, is we're supposed to be, frankly, the way it's put in the rest of the New Testament is we're supposed to be aliens in a foreign land. 
constantly living as if this is our home, but feeling the tension and the longing for another place. For example, I'll give you to this, Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul looks at the Colossian church, and here's how he addresses them. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That means you are located as a Christian in two places at all times. It means you always have dual citizenship, citizenship in heaven and citizenship on this earth. You live for the glory of God and for a future world, but at the same time, you're still a citizen in this world, and so you live for the good of this world. So we cannot escape the tension. And frankly, if you try to escape it, you'll ruin mission. All through a Christian life, we'll have to walk, frankly, what is called the knife's edge of this tension. Always wondering if we're going to fall off the slack line. Looking like, frankly, missional baby deer. And this is who you are. But you know the best way to keep the tension? Here's the best way to keep the tension. It's to keep focused on the goal. Where are we going? What are we being called here to do? In other words, focusing on our sentness at all times is how we will actually bear and keep the tension in our bodies and in our lives. If you're on a slack line or a balance beam, the tension in you is created as you keep a laser focus on staying on the balance beam. But the second you relax, what happens? You fall off. So when you don't concentrate fully, you'll fall off. In other words, what I want you to say here is do life on purpose. Do life on purpose. So here's what we need to do. Get laser focused and intentional about finding and centering our joy in the mission that God has given us. This is your second point this morning. And this is what Jesus prays for us. We said this at the beginning last week. Jesus shapes in the middle point of this prayer is in verse 13, and Jesus says this. He says, I am coming to you now, Father, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy. The Greek word for joy here in full measure is the word pleroma. It's the word, it's the word for fullness of joy. It's the difference between having a cup of water and having an overflowing well of water. And what Jesus is saying is this, and this is critical to understand for your life. And it's part of for some reason why so many of you are anxious and depressed is because you're so self-focused because you have taken your eyes off of your sentness, off of your mission. You see, Jesus wants us to have a fullness in our lives. And in order to give us a full life, what does he pray that we would have? That we would have a sentness to our life. I want their joy, Father. So what does he pray for them? Sanctify them so that they are sent into the world's sanctify them so they may be sent into the world. And what's the mission? In other words, what Jesus says is this, is that if you want to have joy in this life, you are intentionally mission-focused in whatever you do. So if you drink, drink to the mission of God. If you school in a certain way, you do it for the mission of God. That should be, I want to write a book that says, don't waste your homeschooling and don't waste your public schooling. That both of them, done right, and the motivation of all things that we do in this life is mission. Mission. Is living into my sense-ness. What's the mission? What does it mean to have a mission? It means means that you're willing to give up your comfort, your position, your safety. It means every other cause in your life comes second to the mission of God. It means you give up your, your needs. It means you give up your freedom. You risk all for this cause. That's what it is to be on mission. 
And let me tell you something. If you have that kind of mission in your life, it will give you joy. Ever talk to an old soldier? And they will recall back the time in their life where they had the most joy. For some of them, it's, man, when I was in the military and I was on mission. A life of mission gives joy. You know, this is Jesus' perspective. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says this. Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and let us run with perseverance our race, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? He is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. It's for the sake of the joy that was set before him. What, is it saying that the cross was joyous? No. It's saying that what the cross was achieving was joyous. That the accomplishment of the mission was joyless. If you live for the furtherance of your own interests, for your social interests, your economic interests, your personal interests, if you live simply for your selfish own comfort and your own needs and your own happiness and your own freedom, guess why your, li- your life will become small and ultimately it will become joyless. But guess what? When you get to live into the mission of God in this world, it means it is a pot that is constantly flowing up. There's always more joy to experience. If you want a big life, you want a full life, if you don't want to merely just exist and get through and endure this life, then you get on mission. Now understand this, because this is important. In a world in the church in which we talk about missional living all the time, it's really important that we understand what mission is. Mission is death. I just described, remember, mission is when your comfort, your position, your safety comes second. Everything else comes second to the mission. That's what it means to be on mission. That I'll give up my life in order to be on mission. So let's not kid ourselves. Why is Jesus praying for us? Because mission is hard. It's really hard. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we must avoid any temptation to think and view mission in this world as an easy thing. Any idea of being sent in the world in such a way that it does not involve death is probably not incarnational, missional sentness. And here I would like to slap around the American church a little bit. There is a Starbucksization of the way we do ministry. You know what it is like to do ministry through Starbucks? They'll say, hey, your $5.50 drink, we're going to give 10 cents to clean water around the world. And so you get to overspend and feel good about it. How do churches do ministry? Hey, this is how often you look at them. It is often as sacrificialist as possible. Let's clean up the side of the road together and we'll all wear church t-shirts. We'll get a lot of notoriety and then afterwards we'll all go get $5 lattes together. And we wonder why the church is impotent in this world. Mission involves death. It doesn't mean you have a party for the Easter bunny and call it mission. It means you do things like you adopt and you die. It means you do radical hospitality where you give up socially being in social, social comfortable situations in which you invite people who aren't like you into your home. When you give up in your nights and your weekends to invite people into your life. When you seek to be involved in missions around the world, which means you might actually have to give it such a way that you skip one vacation or two vacations or God forbid three vacations in a year. 
It means that you actually give up your life in such a way that you're taking up a cross and taking up the mission of God that you would say that I see a problem in my community and I'm going to go and I'm going to grab it and I'm not sure if I have the leadership skills to do it, but I'm going to do something about this even though it takes my time, my energy, all of my skills to make this happen. It is not a vapid, small, non-sacrificial form of ministry. That's what mission is. And when you get involved in mission like this, it will give you joy. To be involved in God's great work in this world. And so we have seen that mission when it, when it is when your comfort, your position, your safety comes second to a greater cause. Now, real quickly, what is the cause? What is the cause of our mission? What does a Christian do everything? Why does a Christian do everything he or she does? And it's actually hidden somewhat in the text. Verse 21 it says this in John chapter. Chapter 17 says that you, that the world, I'm going to send them out so that the world may believe you have sent me. And we actually also see it. What does it say in verse 18 when he calls us to the mission? Just as I was sent into the world, so I am sending them in the world. Our mission is to be sent into the world in order to point back to the one who already came into the world. Our mission is to be sent into the world so that a world may believe that the Father sent Jesus into the world. Jesus is the sent one to whom we point. And our mission is to get the world to believe in Jesus' mission. Whether we're doing that in word or deed, as a loving and beautiful community, we're pointing to Jesus over and over and over again. That is our mission. And by the way, this helps keep the tension of the in the world and not of it. And here I have to go a little bit deeper. There's a guy named James Davison Hunter who wrote a book. It's called The Change of the World in 2010. Amongst academics and theologians, it was a watershed book on looking at how Christians have engaged with culture, particularly in America. It was then followed up by a number of various works over the last couple of years, um, piggybacking on his work. But in his work, he describes the historical pattern of how the church has usually functioned and related to the world. He gives three different categories to the way we have normally functioned. First, the, world, we, the church is often taking what is called the fortification approach. In this view, the basic task of the church is vigilant preservation because the basic threat to the church is that we would lose our character to the larger culture. It functions from fear that the outside world will corrupt us, and so we put up huge walls around us. This is historically what we would call Anabaptist tradition. It's the most, it's the greatest character of this are the Quakers, right? You remove yourself entirely. But many churches individually and individual people and families take on the same exact approach. The second, he said, historically has been the accommodation approach. The basic task of the church here is to have an active partnership with our neighbors in the interest of social renewal. This is the missional approach du jour, the basic threat to the church is that its own separatist tendencies will actually ruin it. And you see this in the seeker movement of the church, seeker model churches. In much of what is now called the missional movement of the church today is this particular accommodation approach. The third approach, and what is the most predominant approach the last 30 to 40 years in America, is what's called the domination approach. In this view, the task of the church is to extend its own values and mores into the world around us. While the basic threat to the church is those whose values differ from their own. And therefore, the church takes an antagonistic, both a fortification, but then an antagonistic approach to the world. This, par this paradigm tends to view the world in fundamentally oppositional terms. Us versus them. 
And yet it expresses its opposition not in withdrawal from the world, but in aggression against it. Inherent in this aggression, he says, which mostly takes a political form, is a sort of aspiration to triumph, a perspective in which neighbors, uh, which we engage with our neighbors with, one, with whom one differs, are viewed as people not to be loved, but as people to be defeated with our arguments and our political views. That's the domination approach. Now, here's, what, what, here's all three are wrong, and here's why. Because at the heart of all three, most poignantly, they are self-focused. Here's what all three say. Each of these are self-focused. Fortification says, keep us great. Accommodation says, aren't we great? And domination says, we are greater than you. What is the mission of the church? I go away, and Jesus becomes great. What is the mission of the church? Is to say, Jesus is the sent one. Pay no attention to me. I am not great. Don't pay attention. I am my, my morals are not better than yours. I am not a great person because of my societal engagement. I'm not better because we have moved ourselves away from all the bad things in this world. It's not about me. It's about Jesus and how great he is. And it cuts right through all of our patterns of the way historically we've done work as a church. And so, so Jesus prays that we would keep attention, that we keep the joy in our mission. And the joy of our mission is this. Jesus is great. And so it's not about me. Isn't that great? There's joy in making your life about something bigger than you. Lastly, and very briefly, the third thing Jesus prays for is that we would experience the grace for our mission. Experience the grace for our mission. Here's here's another way. We're actually going to look at the exact same things we said last week, all three points that we looked at last week. If you have, I'm going to bring back the, the slack line illustration. If you have any hope of walking across the rope, there is, there's actually, with my kids' slack line, there's two of them. There's the one they walk on, and then above it, about six feet above it, there's another rope. And if you have, but I've done this many times, if you have any hope of taking one step on the slack line, you are clinging to that upper rope, the guideline, with your life. And your body is wobbling all over the place. But what is that rope up there giving you? It's called grace. Where you're a colossal screw-up, and you would fall off the slack line in about a half a second. You're clinging to that thing. Or more, it's a better picture would be the fact that Jesus clings to you. That maybe you're on a rappel rope, and the rappel rope is clinging to you. You're on a zip line. And the guide straps your booty to another line so that you, no matter how dumb you are, and you let go of the rope, it's still clinging to you. That's actually the image that we have. You see, what Jesus prays for, and I'm going to be very brief on this because it's simply a review and redirection of all we looked at last week. Last week we said we have these truths that Jesus prayed for us so that we might be endure in this world. But he also prays those truths, not simply so you might endure, but also so that you might be on mission in this world. And what are the three things that we prayed for? And I'm going to connect them to mission real briefly. The last thing he prays for, he says what in verse 18? That they would be sanctified in the truth. The grace, what you need in order to walk across the slack line of mission is that slack line of God's sanctifying grace in your life. Now, what it means to be sanctified is this, is that God has set you apart for a holy purpose. 
That in the, in the Old Testament temple, things that were set apart for a holy purpose, they were instruments in the temple, and they would wash them with a particular water, and they would say that they're sanctified for a holy purpose. And so you are sanctified by God for a holy purpose. You have been set aside to be sent ones into this world. And guess what? God is doing that work in you. And so where you look at your life and you go, I am not holy enough. I am not set apart enough. I am messing up. I am too much like the world. Here's the beautiful truth. God's not done with you. So cling to the grace of the slack line. That he is still sanctifying and remaking you and you get back on mission. The second thing, we have the grace of a keeping God. Verses 11 and verse 15, Jesus prays this. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Then he says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And then verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And last week we looked at this beautiful truth that if you are God's child, he will never let you go. He will keep you. He holds you in his hand, which means this. You could actually move towards the world with all of those sinners where you might get a little bit corrupted and you might get some dirt on you and you cannot move towards them with fear that you will lose something because God is the one who keeps you. He is the one who holds on to you. Now, this does not mean that you just get to be foolishness. It does not mean suddenly we all get to start ministries to strip clubs. That is not what this means. But what this means is this, is that we don't have to fear losing our salvation because we are connected to those who are in the world in some way, shape, or form. Paul actually says this, that we are not to have a people, we are people who have a spirit of fear. He says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy verses 1, or chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. I remind you, Timothy, to fan the flame, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And God is keeping you by his power, so that you can move into dark places. This also means this, if you are weary and tired of worn, and you have been wobbling on the slack line of mission for a long time, and you're going, I'm not sure I can stand this much longer, God keeps you. You keep running to the fact that God keeps you, that he is with you, that he is for you. And you may be tired and weary and worn, but you keep getting on that slack line. You keep engaging in the mission of God's work in this world because you have a God who will keep you and protect you. And lastly, we have the grace of a possessing God, right? We saw it all through the first couple of verses, 6 through 10, like six, seven times, God uses possessive words to describe us. We are God's gift from the Father to Jesus, and then Jesus wins for us a salvation so that we might be his gift back to the Father. We are possessed by God. We are his. And the fact that you're possessed by God reminds us that we were once part of this world. Why are you the Lord's? Is it because you figured out a way to get out of the world? No, it's because God, as a the God the Father elected you and pulled you out of the world of his own free grace and mercy. He pulled you out. And understand this, if we are separatists, if we withdraw from the world, we show that we haven't understood God's grace. Because we are God's people. We are God's people before we did anything to remove ourselves and a holiness away from the world. And he plucked you out and he pulled you out. And if we give, through our separatism, we give the impression that it is our separation from the world is what saves us. But what saves us? The fact that God shows us. The fact that God pulled us out. And the fact that you're possessed by God reminds you also who you are. We just said it this morning in baptism. You belong to God. 
You are not your own. You don't get to live any way you want, right? I tell my kids, that's not what we do in our family. Henleys don't do that. That is not who you are. You don't get to live any way you want. You don't get to be like the world. Remember who you are. And lastly, the gift that you're possessed by God, the fact that you're possessed by God reminds you of how glorious our God is. If there's a God who sees you, I said it last week in about as, as lowbrow parks and recreation sort of way, didn't I? The, the Trinity in heaven said, let's treat ourselves. And they treated themselves with you. That's an unbelievable God. But are you grateful for the goodness of God in your life? That when you understand that he has called you and set you apart, and he says, you are mine, and we saw it and Ben read it from 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2 this morning, that you are his holy nation, his prized possession. What does he say? So that you might go and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. And when you understand that God loves you like this, when he has called you his, it is a thing that motivates you and pushes you out to proclaim, into the world to proclaim the name of the one who has made you his. So God chose you out of the world and he gave you to Jesus who saved you to present you back to the Father. So remember who you are. Remember who you are. That We have a keeping God who is sanctifying and changing you. And so you get back on mission bearing the tension of being in the world and not of the world, and seeking a greater joy. May he give that to us. Man, we need it here at King's Chapel. Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious God, I pray that more and more each day that we would um, both jointly hate the world more and the sense of wanting to be removed from the desires that drive the world. But in the same sense, with the love of Jesus Christ, give us a love and affection for the world. To see it changed and transformed into the image of Christ. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, we have, a, we have what feels like an impossible task in front of us. To be sent ones into the world. So, Spirit of the living God, if you're going to send us into the world, we're going to need your help. And so, gracious God, we cling to the great promise that you are still praying this prayer in heaven on our behalf. That you're praying prayers that would keep us. You're praying prayers that we would be changed and transformed. That you're praying prayers that empower us into mission. So, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that your prayer would come true in our lives. That what you pray would become manifest in our lives. We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen.